0: Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> so I want to um, start off the talk tonight um, reading a, uh, <clears throat> a favorite passage from one of the great um Dharma Classics, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. <clears throat> it's a great book. Have Anybody read that book? Okay. It's really good. This is what he says. <clears throat> In our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left at the driver's will before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of meditation practice. You may think that when you sit in meditation, you'll find out whether you are one of the best horses or one of the worst ones here. However, there is a misunderstanding of practice. If you think the aim of meditation practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you'll have a big problem. This is not right understanding. If you practice meditation in the right way, it doesn't matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He would probably have much more compassion for the worst one than the best one. When you are determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find that the worst ho- horse is often the most valuable one in your very imperfections. You will find the basis for your firm way seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing, will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Isn't that comforting? (laughs) Unless you're somebody who sits in full lotus and doesn't move, and there's hope for you yet. (laughs) But we so often uh, have these ideas and... Uh, conceptions about what a good meditator looks like. And if I'm really doing it well, then this is going to happen. And this is really painful. This is, let's see, from the Buddha, where he talks about this. Let's see where I have it. Somewhere in here. see. Oh, can do it from here. He says... <clears throat> if I can find it. It's here somewhere. Let's be patient. Okay. One who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that reason disputes, but one who is unmoved under those three conditions for that person, the notion of superior or inferior or equal do not exist. One who is free from such views as these, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies such as this. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world, annoying people. (laughs) And who do you think we most annoy? when we get into this idea of how, oh, I'm better than, or I'm worse than, or am I as good as, we're the ones that get most annoyed. The Buddha has a a term for this capacity to compare and judge. And it's called the conceit of I am, mana, in Pali, M-A-N-A, mana, the conceit of I am. And you can hear in that that passage not only in the sense of being better than, but being worse than is also mana, the conceit of I am. And evil, even equal to, is still the conceit of I am. Not because you're saying, "Oh, how wonderful I am," but because you are reifying this sense of self that's comparing with those other selves that you take to be real. And he says, "This is a a, a source. Uh, this gets in the way of true liberation, to true, fr- true freedom, when you separate yourself out and then start comparing." against others. Now, something that you might find very comforting if you happen to fall into this habit is that um, it's here for a long time. In this model of awakening uh, in the classical model, in the Theravadan uh, teachings, there are four stages of enlightenment first stage is called stream entry or sotapanna, where a few things fall away. Uh, uh, the, um, the belief in, in self and uh, rites and rituals and, uh, and doubt about the path. Um, and then there's a second stage called the once returner where some other things fall away. And then there's a third stage, the non-returner And then the fourth stage is full enlightenment, what's called an arhat, a fully enlightened being. This conceit of I am is even there at the third stage of enlightenment. So if you find yourself getting caught in comparing or judging, one way to think of it is, well, you're no higher than third stage of enlightenment (laughs) anyway. So you can just cut yourself a little slack. You see this a lot when you're practicing particularly you're practicing with other people you you come into the hall and uh, and you see somebody or a few people just like statues and you're sure that they are just on the cusp of full liberation right and there you are squirming or itching, or whatever is going on, or or you see somebody really slow walking, you know, just whoa, and you think, wow, (laughs) Um, oh my God, look at them. Or or the mind can go in lots of ways when you get into judging. Uh, I know this for myself. Somebody can be going slowly, and you might say, or the next day you might say, who are they trying to impress and improve? You know. Or somebody is walking at a natural pace and you say, you know, wow, they're just themselves. They're not trying to impress anyway. How cool that is, you know. Or the next day, don't they get it? Why don't they just slow down? You know, we're not at a track meet here, you know. So the mind can just find anything to compare or to judge and evaluate. And as I've said a few times, give a report card, either to yourself or to others or to life. Happens, you probably have seen in the dining room, another very social situation. Right? You know, like, ooh, look at Miss Mindfulness there, trying to be so (laughs) meticulous, you know, or Look how much food he put on his plate. You know. it's just, it just goes. So I want to talk tonight about this tendency to judge and to compare. And maybe uh, it will be uh, something relevant to you as you go through these days of practice. Both how it arises and maybe how to work with it, what to do about it. <coughs> So can you close that a bit? It's a little cool. Thanks. <clears throat> it, just to see when when does it arise for you here in the in the retreat? maybe at dining uh, in the dining room, or maybe in walking or maybe in sitting, or maybe you're comparing yourself to the the last retreat you had, where at that very last sitting, you finally got quiet. I think I got this now, you know, and then you come here, it's like slogging through a swamp and a you know the Everglades. Um, hmm. and it, it's at some time you know you just you track it and you see it that much more clearly, and it's so humbling on one retreat in my earlier days of practice i I really loved slow walking. I, I don't have the same balance as I did then, but I used to really love getting in that mode and going slowly. And I'd be all by myself, just going, oh, lifting, moving, placing, yeah. Somebody else comes into my space. And all of a sudden, I had a whole other reason for, for walking. And I started, I used mental noting a lot, uh, and still do sometimes in my practice. And the noting became lifting, moving, looking good, lifting, moving, <laughs> looking good, looking good, you know.
1: Because I was being honest.
0: This is what was going on inside. She was, oh, yeah, looking good. Uh, mm. So, it happens here on retreat, and it also happens particularly in, in this culture, uh, even more than most, because the, U, the United States, the, the bastion of independence, and we're number one, which is really a heavy burden to carry, um, there's such a strong emphasis on competition and on being the best. It's so different, I'm told, for instance, in Japan, where if you stick out, then there, there's something very strange about you. But in our culture, it's you know, well, you see some leaders say, yes, uh, here I am. Um, it, it, it's so. Um, um, so, such a hallmark of our culture and that's about our country uh, and probably if you're not from the United States, your country probably it's good to have pride in your country but to to say oh we're the best is kind of like missing the point or my city is the best you know, it's really neat to come from the, to live in the Bay Area and there's, there can be easily we are <laughs> But you know, it's just one perspective. Or your sports team—we are number one in basketball, by the way. Uh, I just want to say. Um, but you can get so attached to it, and it gets in the mind, in, in the way. And you can attribute that also to comparing yourself, your body. Your mind, oh my mind is you know not as sharp as the next person's or my my uh, if only my hair were a little curlier or a little whatever if my uh, my f- if I was a little bit thinner or a little bit he- uh, stronger or a little bit whatever um, it's so um, dominant in our culture particularly when we get the messages from from Madison Avenue, from advertising. Our accomplishments, even our shortcomings, we can kind of take pride in. Like when I was going to college and reading a lot of existential philosophy and uh, uh, I I thought that, uh, well, the deeper you are, the more screwed up you are, you know. So, you know, I was definitely on that side, you know. Well, yes. I might be messed up, but I'm, I'm deeply messed up. <laughs> we can have it a- around anything, so um, and it comes out in practice a lot too. Mm. Here's a actually, where is it? Here's a, a, a lovely passage from Ajahn Sumedho, who was a uh, one of the, the senior Western monastic in Theravadan tradition, who uh, was Ajahn Chah's uh, first Western student, Jack Cornfields' kind of elder brother, and he established all the, the Amaravati uh, monasteries. And this is him talking. He says, when I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice and say, aye, aye, sir, in public and in a roll call would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher. Teaching eight and nine-year-old Chinese kids in northern Borneo for a couple of years, that wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai all of this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you'd get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good Sumedo. You can give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I'd give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to ever give another talk again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching this. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, the self-consciousness that I'd feel. And fortunately, in Thailand, the people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seem quite grateful about it. So that made it a bit easier. One time, at a ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. And up until that time, I'd only talked for half an hour. That was a strain, but three hours and he knew. Now with Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. And I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. And at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies sitting up there. Now, Ajahn Chah wasn't saying, okay, Sumedho, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff. Entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at all of this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All these have come up during all of these talks over many, many years. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of a self view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. So you don't escape it, even when you take the Dharma seat and become a Dharma teacher, whatever that means. The f- my earlier days of practice, when I, when my earlier days of being a teacher, uh, I'd we'd have these big retreats down at um, Southern California, at Yucca Valley, and uh, it'd be like 150 or more people in the on the retreat. And I'd be teaching with like the all-star classic team. Joseph Goldstein, I don't know if, the, if these names are familiar to you, but Joseph Goldstein, who is my main teacher, would give a talk and just blow people's minds with the clarity and depth. Wow. And then Jack Cornfield would give a talk and hypnotize the whole crowd, just put a spell over them. Then Sharon Salzberg would give a talk the next night, and tears rolling down people's cheeks as she spoke about loving kindness. Right, and then I'd have to give a talk (laughs) the next night, and I knew if I was giving, if I was there in the audience, I'd be saying, "Get that guy off and get Goldstein back on." (laughs) And it was it was really painful. You know, and and finally, at, at one point, I um, I went to um, my other teacher, uh, who's been a, a mentor for uh, all these many years, Ramdas, the man who wrote "Be Here Now," which was something I carried around like a Bible, and and he's he's been a, a main um, uh, mentor uh, for many years. And I went to him and I said, "This is just so painful." I no I don't want I wouldn't be wanting to hear me and I get up there and I just kind of feel I'm not good enough to help and he said he thought for a while and he said well you know all of them are beaut- are brilliant but they're all taken Joseph Goldstein is already taken don't try to be another Joseph Goldstein why don't you just be Jamie Barris? I went by Jamie in those days. Why don't you just be Jamie Barras? He might be okay. Why don't you see what comes out of his mouth? And it was one of the uh, most important pieces of, of support that I, I have ever heard. Because we all have our own way of expressing the Dharma. We we all have our own unique way to convey our love of the truth and our commitment to waking up. And that's what these talks are as much about as any information. We're communicating our own gratitude for how the Dharma's touched us so that on the receiving end, who's ever hearing and can hear that can say, I want to look for myself too. So this is what we're, we're exploring. Who are you? What's your unique expression of the Dharma, of wisdom, of life? And when you see that tendency to judge or to think you're not good enough, this is a great misunderstanding. Um, I said this at the the last retreat, uh, this uh, um, one experience with this that I had on one three month retreat that I, I sat. This is in 1979. Um, and at the end of that retreat, the Dalai Lama came to the center in Massachusetts. He had just come to the States for the very first time a couple of months before and somehow he heard that this retreat was going on, and he visited all of these sincere yogis who'd been sitting for two and a half months. And um, he was taking questions. It was a Q&A that we had with him. It's a great way to break a retreat, by the way, to have the Dalai Lama come and <laughs> give you a little encouragement. And somebody raised their hand and said, um, what, uh, w- could you tell me what, what to do about self-hatred and, uh, and self-loathing? And at first, when he heard the question through the translator, he, he didn't quite get the concept. And they went back and forth, self-hatred. self-hatred. And then he kind of, he got it, and he looked at this guy, and he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. You imagine sitting for two and a half months and the Dalai Lama coming and saying, you're wrong. You know? <laughs> But he said it with, with tremendous compassion. And then he went on to say something like, what makes you think that everything belongs in the universe and you're not good enough? That somehow you don't fit in. This is a tremendous misunderstanding. And that's really what's going on when we think we're not good enough. That somehow we don't belong or measure up when everything else is a perfect expression of life it 's like you go out into into a forest, and there's lots of different kinds of trees. There might be you know, um, strong, vital, tall trees and smaller trees that are that are um, closer to the ground, more shrub. Uh, like, and then there's old gnarly trees that have a lot of character. You probably aren't saying, gee, if that gnarly tree was only a bit straighter, it would be better. No. Every tree belongs. It's perfect. And it's the same way with us. How could we not be part of the fabric of life? So. This tendency to see not good enough or to think not good enough is is a grave uh, misunderstanding. There's a line I love uh, from um, The Course in Miracles, a a beautiful body of um, Christian teachings. And it says, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. So how does this happen? How do we get caught in this comparing? I just wanna mention a, one little teaching about how this mind-body process works that gets us into that comparing. In uh, In Buddhist teachings, there are One way to think of this human form, this mind-body process as having five components, what are called the five aggregates or five skandhas. And one of them is the body form, this physical body, and the other four are mind, form, feeling, feeling being um, not so much emotions, but the flavor of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Every experience has one of those flavors. That's called Vedana, form, feeling, perception, which recognizes things like this is a bell. This is a stool or a bench. Um, This is a light. And we file it from our previous experience. Form, feeling, perception, mental formations. That's all the thoughts and the mind states and the feelings that we can be experiencing. And the fifth is consciousness, the knowing capacity. So form, feeling, perception, mental formation, consciousness. That's the, the five skandhas or five aggregates, this body-mind process, where the judging mind comes in is around perception, where you see bell and this is a pretty bell perhaps, but maybe not as pretty as another bell or not as big or, or not as small as another bell. And so the mind that gets into perception is continually trying to orient where our new experience is relative to previous experiences. It's not that that's bad. Yeah, this might be a smaller bell, than the bell downstairs in the hall. But to think of it as better or worse, that's where the slippery slope comes in. So it's very natural that we're also we're trying to sort out danger, sort out friend and foe, and all of those things that can easily lead to a comparing of better or worse. But it's just different, not necessarily better or worse, maybe more safer or more dangerous. Uh, But we get into this comparing as a very deep habitual pattern. And we're the ones that suffer in that. Mm -hmm. When really... Just seeing who you truly are, you are a perfect manifestation of life. Here's, uh, I can find it here. A teaching from Nyosho Kempo Rinpoche. Oh, the one who um, uh, Kate was quoting from last night. Remember she said, uh, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. Well, this is another of his teachings. Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself is present in everyone. Its essence is forever pure and flawless. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There is no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing this Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. That's what we're trying to do here to see who you are beyond your habits of mind or the confusions that you overlay on top of reality who you are, you know, at the beginning, we took refuge in the Buddha. And refuge in the Buddha not only points to that historical figure, the word Buddha means one who is awake. And it is the awakened heart in all of us. And we take refuge in our own capacity for liberation, for wakefulness as is often said, the Buddha solved his problem. We have to see what he understood. And that's why he, he said, I, want, I teach because everyone can experience what I have experienced. Because we all have this quality of wakefulness, In us, Ajahn Sumedho has a a lovely way of of saying that um, practice is getting in touch with the the shining through of the divine. So, how to work with this comparing and judging mind? A few different... um, approaches and um, understandings that you might find helpful in your practice when it comes up. The first is, as uh, Kate was doing uh, this this afternoon, and we've been talking about since uh, the retreat started, bringing a kind awareness to that judging, you know, holding it with compassion, holding it with self-compassion. That is the key. Holding it with a quality of forgiveness. It's just the mind getting caught. And in a moment, you can see through that habit and have a a perspective that says, oh dear, it's okay on one retreat. Actually, I'll I'll share with you one of my um, big watershed moments in forgiveness and compassion for myself. It was on my very first long retreat, another three-month retreat. This was was the first three-month course at IMS in 1976. And there I was really enjoying the practice. And it was another one of these slow it 's a slow walking story, and I was all by myself in in the walking room, and I just decided to play a game to see how slowly I could go right? and I pretended i don't know if you're, if you're old enough you you would know the the great French mime Marcel Marceau right and if you're young enough uh, just do a YouTube clip of a Marcel Marceau, he, this French mime who would, like, you couldn't even see him move, but he'd be moving. He had, and I thought, how does he do that? I'll just pretend I'm a Marcel Marceau and just really creep, you know. In the middle of this game that I was playing with myself, somebody comes into the walking room. Who just came onto the retreat because in the very the first two years of the, those fall retreats, they tacked on a two week retreat at the end of the three month course. Not such a good idea. They did it for a couple of years and they said, "No, okay, not so good because you can really feel somebody 's energy when they come in, and this was one of these new people who was just kind of racing around everywhere, and there I was, Marcel Marceau, you know, <laughs> and I thought, Well, shall I stop this, or shall I just carry on and I thought i 'm not going to let them stop my game I 'm just going to keep on going, you know, just crawling, and meanwhile, this person's going <laughs> going back and forth, you know, and after about two minutes, they bolted out of the room in what I was sure was a comparing inside. And as they went across my field of vision, the thought came to me, wow, I really blew her mind. (laughs) She must think I am a great yogi. And then I heard it reverberating into, look at me, aren't I great? I hope everybody sees. It was painful because there I was trying to be sincere. And there I was, I was so caught in this ego present. It was like I fell into a trap door of this dungeon of yucky ego. And from that slow walking, I became like a caged tiger going back and forth. Who am I kidding? What a phony I am. I'll never get out of this mind. You know, Yeah, you're trying to be so spiritual, aren't you? I did that for a while. And at some point after, after several minutes, the thought occurred to me the millions and millions of times, I'd had that kind of a thought that I'd practiced over and over in this lifetime. And I, by then I was starting to think in terms of many lifetimes, which just completely boggled my mind. And in a moment, I, when I realized how deep the conditioning had been, there was this wave of compassion that said, you are really trying your hardest this is going to take a while. You've practiced it another way. Be really patient with yourself." And I got in touch with how sincere I I really was. And it was one of the first times that that it was the first time that I can remember just this deep sense of compassion and forgiveness because I was getting in touch with my sincerity and with the habit that had been practiced. We can easily evaluate how we're doing by what it looks from the outside. The key to wise effort is getting in touch with your sincerity. It might look very different from one period or one day to the next. Just, you know, one day you might be clear, the next day you might be in a storm. That's out of your control. But if you keep on coming with as much sincerity that really wants to wake up, that's your end of the deal. And if you can see the the habits that you've been practicing as uh, Kate was talking this afternoon, and just see it in, in this context, it's all about habits and neural pathways that have been uh, grooved or that you've gotten into a rut. And we're learning new, new grooves. So to see that brings about a lot of forgiveness and compassion. And here's where the compassion comes in. And Kate was talking about, um, compassion today. I Just want to share with you the mindful self-compassion practice, which Kristen Neff and Chris, Christopher Germer, who are, um, um, practitioners in our tradition have packaged in a very skillful way here's the mindful self compassion practice where if you're either caught in judgment or you're having a storm and you're really it's really hard to hold experience, here's self compassion. Try this a few different steps. First, put your hand on your heart, which releases oxytocin and physiologically calms and soothes and comforts the the whole system. And then they have a few different reflections. I'll just say them and you can uh, use them as you like. But the first reflection is just seeing, oh, this is suffering, this is hard right now. To just acknowledge mindfully, oh, this is a hard one gone through a hard time. And the second reflection is, oh, suffering is part of life. You might think of all the people in the world going through what you're going through just at this time. So you're not so alone. Millions probably experiencing what you're going through, especially if it's a hard, hard moment. Suffering is part of life. And then the third reflection, may I hold my suffering or my pain with kindness and compassion. And just let yourself feel that holding. And you're both the, the one that's hurting inside and the wise one that can hold. hold you. So there's a kind of wholeness where the wise one is holding the hurting one. And that's really coming into wholeness because you have just what you need to comfort them. You're both. Don't miss out on that wise, comforting hand and let yourself receive that comfort as well. So that's the self-compassion practice. And whether or not you, I can put those those uh, those sayings up on the board, but even if you just put your hand on your heart, you can go through the whole week putting your hand on your heart, just holding it when you're having a hard time. That's really skillful. Mm. My own version of this, by the way, I, I shared this in, in one of the groups um, about working with the judging mind. This is before I ever heard of um, my uh, mindful self-compassion. I um, I saw I really had to to work with this judging because I have I a really strong judging mind, you know, maybe even better than yours. You know? <laughs> and I was um, I was wondering how can I hold this because every time. I'd see the judgment. There's another judgment. Judging again. And there's no end to seeing judgment, then judging the judging, and then judging the fact that you're judging the judging, and on and on. No way out of that. Unless, at some point, you just don't judge the judging. And instead... See it with kindness and compassion. So this was my practice. I'll share with you my secret teachings for about two years. This was my main practice. Just try this. Suppose, and you can close your eyes so you won't feel funny about doing this. And just suppose you notice a judgment in the mind. You know, "Ah, there's my mind wandering again. And you notice, oh, that's judging. Now... Put your hand on your cheek. And as if you were the wisest being doing the noticing, <clears throat> as if you were Kuan Yin doing the noticing, as you hold or caress your cheek, just say in the kindest voice, oh, judging, judging. Like, it's okay, judging and let yourself feel that tenderness. That's how you wanna notice the judging mind. Okay, you can take your hand now. Could you feel it for a moment, that tenderness? That was my main practice for two years, both on retreat and, and off. And as I said earlier, it's not like I did this every time. I did it a lot at the beginning and when I'd start hearing that voice become harsh again, I'd do it every time I'd remember that when it started to get a little harsh. But what happened over time was the tone of voice in my mind more and more became that Kwan Yin or that wise kind being, oh, it's okay. The tone, you know, we've mentioned a little bit about mental noting the tone that you note things makes all the difference in the world. So if you find yourself noting with a finger wag or a scolding, shift it to a softening, a softening. Okay, so that's first, is uh, that holding it with compassion and kindness. Second to uh, notice the uh, the judging mind, is just seeing that thought has come out of nowhere. See, it is as real as you believe it to be or as as empty as you realize that it is. Joseph has a very good instruction, by the way. If you're bothered by your thoughts and you're in a room of people meditating, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. You don't have to blame yourself for that. You're just kind of picking up some radio waves, you know. Yeah. Damn it. Will you? Oh, I hope you'll, get, you, you'll take care of yourself. It's very effective, you know. As soon as you're not taking ownership of the thought, no problem. Oh, yes, it's okay. That's seeing how empty those thoughts are. So... In your working with uh, whatever the hindrance is, or whatever the uh, your thoughts are, the secret is not taking ownership of them. They come all by themselves, and they will vanish by themselves if you don't take it personally. Mm. It's just seeing them as empty and impermanent. Another strategy for dealing with the judging mind, sense of humor makes a big difference. I I mentioned it, I think here before in one of the groups, if you can shift from saying, oh my God, what a pathetic mind I have. Look at my mind to, wow, look at the mind. Not my mind, look at the mind. This is your laboratory to understand the human experience and having a a lightness about it. And I hope you have gotten a little sense of laughing at your mind and not taking it personally. It changes everything. On one retreat, I was looking again at the judging mind and there's this great line in uh, the Third Zen Patriarch, uh, this wonderful piece of, of wisdom that I love. And it says, um, the lines are, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. And that made sense to me. The burdensome practice of judging. Yeah. And so what I did for, I played a little game. Every time I noticed a judging thought, I just tack on the burdensome practice of judging. Just to remind Oh, I don't have to go there. And I'd go, particularly in, in, uh, at meal times. it was amazing. I'd be sitting there, you know, oh my God, how much food? The burdensome practice of judging. You know, you know. <laughs> oh, I'd drop my, my fork, uh, the burdensome practice of judging. And I'd go through a meal, honestly, 50, 75 times at least, if I was tracking it. And after a while, I just had to laugh because it was like, look at this mind do its thing. I'm trying to do the best I can and every time, as long as you can see it with a little humor, oh, the burdensome practice of judging, ah, there's some space around it. Hmm. Something else I want to share as far as uh, working with the judging mind, mm-hmm. maybe actually now it's getting a little warm. We maybe get a little ventilation in here. I can see. Uh, um, yeah. Something to see about not taking it so personally is not identifying with this sense of self and how to do that. We are so conditioned to think of ourselves as being separate from everything else and everyone else. And really what we're doing here is seeing through this sense of separation. We're not separate. Yeah, there's James and there's Kate and there's Dawn and there's you. On one level, we are these unique patterns of energy. But on another level, this is just life speaking to itself through these forms. And to see through that sense of separation, uh, there's a freedom where you don't have to feel less than, more than, or equal to. So here's a little um, pointer to seeing through this sense of separation and self. Um, and I'd uh, like you to sit up for a moment so you can get in touch with it. Mm. Usually we think of ourselves as some body to whom life is happening. We are a person, like a noun, a person, place, or a thing are nouns, And we usually think of ourselves as nouns. Now, from this place where, yes, I'm me, and thinking of yourself as somebody to whom life is happening, try shifting perspective and think of yourself for a few moments as a verb as a field of activity with all the forces and systems in life, the, your nervous system and your circulatory system and your digestive system and the bio, biological systems and your <coughs> thoughts and feelings, all just happening, all on their own. A field of activity. You are a verb. Yes, you're a noun, but you're also a verb. And when you tune into that perspective, you life isn't happening to you. It's happening through you. It's happening as you. And here we are, all of these energies, just sharing the space So the kind of solidity starts to uh, shimmer a bit and uh, and dissolve. So you might think of yourself in that way, particularly as you're meditating and you're seeing, oh, here's a thought, here's the breath, here's a sensation, here's a feeling, here's another breath, here's another thought, here's an emotion. And you are just this, continual flux of experience that starts to shift a bit how you hold yourself. Okay. So forgiveness, sense of humor, seeing how empty the thoughts are, seeing yourself as a verb. I'll do one more pointer. Uh, to end, and that is to um, appreciate who you are as being quite enough. And this is where the loving kindness metta for self comes in, which as has been mentioned is sometimes the hardest of all. It might be easier to send it towards others, but towards ourself is uh uh, is um a, a frontier for many of us, so i 'll just end by sharing with you uh my own meta practice for self and um, offer this to you um, that I hit upon on a retreat many years a number of years ago um, and I was doing the meta practice like we are doing here. May I be safe may i be happy, healthy, peaceful, and doing that as a full-on meta retreat. That was, it was, uh, I decided to do a long period of loving kindness, six weeks of loving kindness. And the first, the first week uh, was doing loving kindness towards self. We well, you're just doing that from the moment you wake up to the moment you go down. May I be safe, happy, healthy, etc. And, uh, It was going okay. It wasn't fantastic, but it was okay. I wasn't giving myself a hard time when, um, after a few days, somebody came to my mind who I knew really loved me. They just came to my mind and I thought, wow, that person really does love me. And then I thought, this would be so much easier if I could just see what they see. And then I connected the dots and I said, well, what do they see anyway? Why do they love me so much? And that's when I hit upon this, this um, way of doing meta for self. So I want, want to share this with you. So sit up if you can. And uh, I'd like you to bring to mind someone who opens your heart, and maybe somebody who you have a, a a a sweet connection with can be a friend, it can be a pet, it can be a child, maybe someone from your past that you really really share a um a sweet connection, who opens your heart and who um, you enjoy being with and they with you. And just imagine, if you can, that they're here, right in front of you. And to whatever degree is available, just feel feel that flow of connection that you share. Which is lovely. And as you're tuning into that flow. Imagine that your consciousness can inhabit their reality and look through their eyes and see who they see when they're with their friend. Why do they enjoy being with you? See what touches them about you. Maybe your playfulness or your kindness, or caring, or your whatever, your creativity, all, notice all the things that touch them about you, your very essence. And from their vantage point, just see if you deserve to be happy and be loved. That's probably what they wish for you. Oh, may you know that I really enjoy and appreciate you. And just send yourself some thoughts like that from their vantage point. May you be happy and see all the good inside. And then let your consciousness come back from their, their perspective to right inside yourself and stay connected from the inside to all of those qualities. Just get who you are and wish yourself well as they do. May, you can say, may I or may you see all the good inside. May you be really happy and at ease. Just send yourself some kind thoughts and see you're good enough, just as you are. Okay, you can open your eyes. Now, whatever your experience, if you weren't able to get in touch with anyone or anything, that's okay. Just know that this is an area to to really um, work on. But if you got even a little glimpse of what your friend saw, then you can't pretend anymore that you're not worthy of kindness and love. Keep seeing what others see that shines through you, whether you realize it or not. We're looking at all of our flaws and people who know us and appreciate us are seeing something else. If you met somebody who really understood you, who really got your, uh, got your perspective on things, who really um, enjoyed your sense of humor and understood where you were coming from, had similar tastes, how would you feel about meeting somebody who really got you? Wouldn't you feel good? Wouldn't you? there's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. (laughs) Only one. Unfortunately, they're right inside your own skin. But if you met yourself from the outside, you'd be saying, where have you been all my life? What a neat person but it's just from our perspective that we don't see that. Albert Einstein has this this saying, we live in an optical delusion of consciousness and from where we are, we don't see things in the, the bigger picture. So working with the judging mind, keep your sense of humor, bring compassion, don't believe your thoughts, see beyond, your limiting beliefs to see who you really are and send some appreciation and kindness towards yourself. So I'll, I'll end with a, a poem that I love that uh, points to this. This is from um, my favorite Dharma poet, Dana Falls. It's called Awakening Now. Why wait for your awakening The moment your eyes are open, seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? The beloved meaning uh, the divine. Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy, I'm afraid, and my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. So let's sit for a moment.